I want to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this evening to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through 32, and then we'll flip to chapter 3, and we'll read the whole of chapter 3. So beginning in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 1, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in His own image, and in the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, And there was morning, the sixth day. And then we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of the tree, or uh, not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This ends the reading of God's word this evening. And then we'll invite you to turn with me in your Heidelberg Catechism, in your Forms and Prayers book, to page 203. 203 in your Forms and Prayers, and we'll turn to Lord's Day 3, of which we will recite the answers in unison. And I just was reminded that it is also in your bulletin, if you want, this week. You can read it from there as well. So we give our attention to question 6. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? To which we respond, No, God created man good and in His own image. That is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God His Creator, love Him with all His heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for His praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. We flip the page to question 8. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Well, my most dear friends, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who, upon Calvary's cross, cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Have you ever prayed prayers like this? I would wager that the majority of us have questioned at one point in our lives if God has abandoned us. Why is this happening to me? If you haven't yet, you will. In life, we do endure many miseries. It's interesting the amount of suffering we see that might lead us to ask questions such as this. Why does the loving Father 
the kindest, the humblest, the gentlest man have to endure prolonged cancer? Why does the doting grandparent of a child addicted to drugs, why do inner city children get shot in shootouts between drug dealers? We don't even deal with these issues domestically, but we see around the world there's genocide in Nigeria. Of course, in World War II, there was the torture of millions of Jews in Germany. There's famine in the Middle East. Destruction of millions of babies in the womb. My God, my God. Have You forsaken us? And it becomes especially hard when we see suffering and misery in those whom we love. So if we believe in a God this evening, we have a problem, don't we? We believe in a God who is both good and we believe in a God who is all-powerful, but how can there also be suffering in the world? Could He not have created a world without misery? The atheists will say. God, why did You not create a perfect world? A world without suffering. A world without death. This has led some people, like Rabbi Kushner, to conclude that yes, there is a God, but God is helpless. And God is unable to fix or stop evil. Others have said, yes, there's a God, but He is not good. He condones evil. Or, as is often the case, misery and suffering leads people just flat out to a denial of God. There can be a temptation in our hearts and in our lives to blame God for the miseries we endure. But our catechism is reminding us this evening this isn't the proper response to misery and our sufferings. The answer to the world's question, why could God not have made a perfect world, is that He did make a perfect world. And it's the presence of sin. It's the presence of misery that there is the reason why there is suffering in this world. It's due to man's sinfulness. But the catechism doesn't end there. It says there is hope for a miracle, doesn't it? Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. That is that God, our sovereign and good God, can take our misery. He can take our sin and our sufferings and He can turn our misery for good. But we need to see this morning that the root of man's misery, the root of our suffering and sin, is found in the fall. That's our theme for our time together this evening. That the root of man's misery is found in the fall. I want, us to, I want to show you this in three points here this evening. We see this in your bulletin insert. Man's original state, man's corruption, and man's only hope. We see this in our First point, man's original state is what goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We see that man was given a special place within God's kingdom. Man alone is said to be made in the image of God. Verse 27. Now, it's not that man is a, just a little bit higher on the pecking order. No, remember what we just sang in Psalm 8 just before 
we read God's Word, it says of man that he was made a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8. It's not that we're just a little bit better than a donkey or a fish, but we are crowned with glory and honor and being created in God's image. As my professor, Reverend Vanderhart, said, he is the last creature made, but he is the first citizen of the kingdom of God on earth. Man speaks very positively, or excuse me, the Bible speaks very positively about man's original state. In fact, we would do well to note that in Genesis chapter 1, as God goes through the creation of the world, there is this ascending crescendo of greater sophistication and a greater complexity in His creation. If you have your Bible open at Genesis chapter 1, we saw in the first day where God, where God creates the earth. Day 2, God separates the sea from dry ground. Day 3, He creates vegetation and life. Day 4, He creates the lights to rule the day and to rule the night. God divides the water and the sky. And then day 6, He creates living creatures and concludes with a living, conscious being that is man. It's an ascending order. It's a crescendoing. It's going up from the basest, going all the way up to the lowest. And God in His Trinitarian person, His threeness within His oneness, has this conversation. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of, man, image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. Consider this, my dear friends. Genesis 1, it says every man and every woman, every boy and every girl are a wonder of God's creation. You are even more a wonder of God's creation than the stars of heaven. Than the most beautiful flower and the most picturesque scene, God says you, humankind, are the crown of my creation. You are the glory of my creation. And so, this makes it very obvious, doesn't it? The answer to question six. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? What is the answer? No. God didn't create evil people. He didn't create monsters. The Catechism says God created man good. You see that at the end of verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw everything that He made and behold, it was very good. You know, I did a word study on the word good. You know what this word means? It means good. Works every time. That is, man was made as part of God's creation as excellent, virtuous, and righteous. That is, in God's created, His created world, it reflected Himself. 
God saw in His creation goodness. And mankind was included in that pronouncement at the conclusion of the sixth day. Man was very good. The Catechism mentions also that man was made in the image of God. It says, and he was created, man, God created man good and in his own image. You know, a few weeks ago, my father was here worshiping with us, and a few of you said to me, You didn't need to tell me he was your dad. You look just like him. It's a common thing, right? For children to resemble their parents. Those children are the image then of their parents, right? And man, God said of man that He would make man in His own image. Verse 26, He says we'll make mankind in our image. This would have been a common terminology at the time that the Moses was writing Genesis, where ancient kings, once they conquered a land, would set up statues of themselves in that land to remind people of who was the king of that land. We see this even today if you go to communist or dictator-led countries. They always want to have a statue or an image of themselves to remind the people who runs things in this place. An image is a reflection. It's a copy of the original. You might say, well, God is Spirit. How are we an image? How do we reflect God who is a spiritual being? God does not have a body. But the Catechism says we don't reflect God physically, but we reflect Him in our character. We we were created good and in His own image. That is, says the Catechism, in true righteousness and holiness. The Catechism could have mentioned that, well, you were created with a soul, or we were given the dominion mandate, or we were given immortality. There's lots of analogies between God and His Creator, His creatures. But the point of the Catechism is showing us here is that God created man good. That's the point it wants to make. And that before the fall happened, what man willed was good, What man did was good. Man was good. And God bestowed upon His creation many bountiful gifts. It says that in question 6, that to be made in the image of God is to truly know God His Creator. To love Him with all His heart. And to live with God in eternal happiness. There's an old doctrine that you may remember for those of you who were raised in the Christian Reformed Church. It was a doctrine that was emphasized quite a bit. It was called the threefold state of man. Is that man was created as prophet, priest, and king. Man was called as a prophet to know God. He was called as a priest to love God. He was called as a king to live for God forever. The purpose of God's creation is to praise and to glorify God. To seek His honor. Not to build a good life. Not to make a name for ourselves. God is the purpose of human life. We see this in creation. 
that man was created to know God, to love God, and to live with Him in eternal happiness. God always had a good plan for His creation. And don't we see this, dear congregation, that God has made man as a wonderful crown of His creation. As I said, there's a crescendo, there's an ascending aspect of His creation. What does this teach us? Of course it teaches us, as we all know, life is precious. Every human life is precious. Even more precious than the stars and the heavens, than the mountains on this earth, you and every life is the crown of God's achievement. And in the fall, this threefold office of man would fall away. It would no longer be good. The original righteousness would fall away and man would no longer know what it means to be that prophet, priest, and king. But it's interesting that the catechism, if you have it open, if you flip to question 32, talks about Christ's anointing. And it says, why are you called a Christian? And it says, because by faith I'm a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing, and I am confessed, listen to this, or I'm anointed, excuse me, listen to this, as a prophet to confess His name, as a priest to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice, as a king to strive with free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ. Catechism says this is how we're created. And though it was lost, the true state of man can be restored again in Jesus Christ. It cannot be restored by our own will. It cannot be restored by our own resources. But it can be restored by the working of Jesus Christ in and through His people. And so when we are on our college campuses, when we are with our friends and they say to you, Well, why did God create this world and there's so much suffering? Why does God allow these things to happen? We can answer the skeptic's question with question 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. God did not create the world wicked and perverse. God did not create a world that is evil and wicked. He created a world that was without evil. He created a world that was righteous and holy. If we were with God at the end of His creation, in chapter 1, verse 31, we would agree with Him that this creation is very good. There's nothing wrong with it. And so we cannot charge God with fault in in this creation. There is sickness in the world. There is sin. But we cannot charge God with the fault of that sin. Just like a little sick child cannot blame its mother for its illnesses. We can't point the finger at God. So the Catechism says we need to look elsewhere. Notice man's corruption. We see this in question 7. So if sin and misery don't originate in God, where does it come from? Question 7 asks that very question. Where does man's corrupt nature come from? 
Very simply, the Catechism says that all the corruption we see in this world, all the misery we endure, the evils inflicted upon us, the wickedness, all comes from one source. Look what it says, question 7. From the fall. That is the first sin of Adam and Eve. The fall and the disobedience of our first parents. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 that we just read. In chapters 1 and 2, God has created a perfect world. He has declared it very good. But in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that this perfect kingdom has been invaded. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God has made. And the serpent, of course, is not just like any other snake, is it? The serpent could speak. The serpent, many scholars scoff at that, saying that this is a book of fables. This is just children's stories. But this was no ordinary snake. The snake is later called in Revelation chapter 12 the dragon. It's called the devil. This is Satan himself. Satan who is at war with God and at war with his creation. And so he tempts Adam and Eve to take a fruit like an apple and to take a bite. And you might say, is this really that bad? But notice in Genesis 3, the serpent doesn't start with the fruit. He starts with questioning God's integrity. He said to the woman, verse 2, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? He's suggesting that God is insulting to His creation order. Can you really believe that God would restrict you? Did God really say He's sowing the seeds of distrust? Sowing the seeds of unbelief? And Adam and Eve, rather than running from temptation, they engage in temptation. Part of God's command to Adam when He said back in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 1 or it's chapter 2, I can't remember off the top of my head, when He said to Adam that you need to guard and keep the garden, there's this expectation that Adam would have to know the borders and the boundaries of the garden. He would have to recognize when there's an infiltrator, when there's somebody invading the garden and be able to to attack. We don't know. It seems likely that Adam was with Eve during this conversation in chapter 3. It seems in verse 6 to suggest that Adam may have been there and listening to this conversation. But what either the case is, Adam becomes an example of what not to do. He is silent. And he doesn't speak up. And he doesn't counsel Eve to reconsider taking this fruit. Sometimes there's a temptation to be silent, right? I had a conversation with somebody after church. It's a lot easier to just look the other way and to be silent. When we see our spouses making poor decisions, when we see our children 
making foolish decisions. God gave Adam to Eve not only to lead her physically, but to lead her spiritually. Husbands ought not to stay silent while their wives and their children and their families walk unto spiritual death. We need to guard and keep God's good, God's goodness unto us. See, what the eating of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil shows us is that Adam and Eve were not just taking the bite of a piece of fruit, but that they were not willing to be subjects of God. And they not only sin in their action, but in their intellect. What was exhibited in them was a great pride. As we sang from Psalm 8, mankind was made with dignity and honor, but he was not, Adam was not, Eve was not satisfied with their dignity, with the condition in which they were made. They wanted to be equal with God. See in Adam actually a great unbelief. Rather than taking God's word to be true, he and his wife assumed the devil's lies to be true. You see, there was a battle in their minds. But not only this, look at the ingratitude of Adam. He had a perfect garden. He had a perfect wife. There was no suffering and death. And he had uninhibited communion with God, but he was not willing to be subject to God's will for him. And saddest of all, look at his emotions. God created him. God loved him. And instead, we see in the heart of Adam a contempt and a disobedience which resulted in apostasy. You see, the first sin is not just the bare eating of a fruit, but it's a disobedience of the whole person. The intellect, the will, and the emotions. To us, eating a piece of fruit seems so un- just seems so natural. It's undramatic, but it had drastic and eternal consequences. There's a poet named John Milton who wrote a book called Paradise Lost. Some of you may have read it at Zion Christian School. And he describes the sin like this as Adam and Eve took that bite of fruit. He says, The earth felt the wound and the nature from her seat Sighing through all her works, she gave signs of woe that all was lost. This is the crown of God's creation. The pinnacle of His work. Going from the height, going from the glories of being made in the image of God to the pit of guilt and estrangement and death. John Milton is correct that at, those mo- at that moment, All was lost. It says that in verse 7. Both of their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. Not only do we see sin's entrance into the world, but notice how it spreads so quickly. It didn't stop with that first couple. It doesn't stop with at the borders of Eden. It affected the very nature of man. The Catechism points out in question 7 that it is so 
poisoned our nature. They were righteous and holy, but now that righteousness and that holiness is gone from sin. Sin has radically changed man. It's destroyed everything and everyone. And because we are all in Adam, we are all conceived and born in sin. This is the origin of human misery and human suffering in mankind. This is how sin and suffering and death has infiltrated the world. And every time we are out and about in the world and we see suffering of any kind, and we see death, we know that it's directly linked to Adam and Eve's fall into sin. In God's curses, beginning in verse 14, we see the terrible effects of the fall. Our sin has caused a great antithesis, a great war between those who will be regenerate by the Spirit of God and those who will not be regenerate. Between Christians and non-Christians, they will constantly be in conflict, says verse 14 and 15. Our sin, Adam and Eve's sin, has caused suffering in the relationships. You see that in verse 16, the curse on the woman. Verses 17 and 18 say, our sin have caused suffering unto death. That's the curse of Adam. There's suffering as we bring forth fruits from the ground. There will be pain and trials even in our work. Suffering, dear Christian, is always the result of the curse. That's why there's suffering. That's why there's misery in this world. Because there is sin. And sinners continue to sin. And there's a word of caution here. My dear friends, especially my young friends who are in university and high school, notice as Eve engages with the serpent in Genesis 3, she enters into his playing field, doesn't she? And Satan is craftier than her. Satan is a twister of truth. And by engaging him, she's already lost the battle. We can't reason with Satan. If we think we can reason with him, we will find ourselves the sorry recipients of his lies. The Scriptures instead say that when Satan comes knocking, what we should do is flee from evil like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. We see this in Amos 5, 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Run from the evil one. The godly response of Adam and Eve would have been to run from Satan and to give no party to his lies, no entertainment. We see that sin has infiltrated the world through our corruption, the corruption of our father and our mother, Adam and Eve. So is there any hope for us? Notice how the Lord's days move sort of from a general speaking to a more specific illustration. At first, in question six, it's talking about man in general. And then you move to question seven and it talks about our and we. And in 
question eight, it then says, are we so corrupt? It's now talking about us. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? You see, congregation, we cannot confess the fall in the Garden of Eden as just some abstract, bare historical fact that has no bearing on our lives. Nor can we look down our noses at Adam and Eve. We often forget, as we're harvesting our crops by the sweat of our brow, and we think, Adam, how could you? Or as the wife is in labor, she says, I really wish you didn't do that, Eve. But we often forget about Adam and Eve, that they are the best of us. They were not the weaklings who fell. They were the ones, remember what the Catechism says in question six, who were made in true righteousness and holiness. They were the best of us, and they still fell. If we were in their place, I don't think we would fare much better. No, I actually think we would act precisely how they acted. And I think we know this to be true in our heart of hearts because we still struggle with sin. Every day of our lives, we struggle with sins. But the aim of the catechism in Lord's Day 3 isn't that you would just know that the world is corrupted and that we are the cause of its corruption, but the aim of the catechism is not to leave us in a hopeless situation. There is yet still hope for us and for the world. But what we need is a true miracle. Yes, we're unable to do good and we are inclined to do towards evil. What we need is a miracle. We need to be born again by the Spirit of God. That is, because Adam and Eve and all of their posterity have forfeited their own righteousness and their own holiness, we need someone who by the Spirit of God can give us their righteousness, who can give us their holiness and perfection. God says to His offending creation that after Adam and Eve try to shift the blame, and the serpent is cursed, and the woman is cursed, and Adam is cursed, and all of creation will suffer because of sin, but nestled within those curses is God's pronouncement to remember them in mercy. Even in His wrath. You see that in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. Later, the Apostle Paul, illumined by the Holy Spirit, will say of this verse, that the One whom God spoke of is Christ. You see that in Galatians 3.16. As God ushers them out of the garden and ushers them out of His presence because of their sin, and proclaims to them the effects of their sin, He gives them that Gospel promise. In chapter 3, verse 15. The promise of the cross. Where Satan, like a snake, would strike the heel out of the grass of 
Christ, but that Christ would put down his foot on that snake and crush its head through his death and his resurrection. Please don't miss what God is saying here, my friends. God is saying to Adam and Eve in chapter 3, verse 15, there is a way back to Eden. There is a way back to paradise. There is a way back to righteousness and holiness and true perfection. And it is by the Spirit of God in Christ. Paul will later say in Romans chapter 5 of Christ that He is the second Adam. That is where Adam failed and fell into sin. Christ has been obedient in every point of the law even to the point of death. Our disobedience can be reconciled by His obedience. Our depravity can be wiped away when we are justified and sanctified and glorified in Jesus Christ. Through Adam's act of sin, we are plunged into a miserable condition. But God performed this miracle. As Jesus said to, John, to Nicodemus in John 3, you need to be born again. Remember Nicodemus' question, well, how can I be born again? Can I crawl into my mother's womb once more? But look at what Christ said to him. You need to look to the cross by faith. That is, God can raise up sinners from a sinful condition by faith in this crucified Son of God. Consider that this evening. That even though through Adam's death, Adam's sin, excuse me, death was brought into the world, God says in Genesis 3.15, through Christ's death, sin will be taken from the world. That is the very thing that Adam brings into this world will be the salvation of the world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation, there is great warning in this passage that by our own strength, Satan will have his way with us. But in Christ, we triumph over sin. In Christ, Satan's binds can be broken. This is a, a doctrine I don't think gets spoken of enough in our churches. But Christian people are free from sin. Do you know that? You don't have to sin. You're not beholden to sin. In Christ, you have been set free, and those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. See, in the garden, man was not able, or excuse me, man was able to sin. After the fall, man was able not not to sin. He couldn't not sin. But in Christ, by His Spirit, you don't have to sin. And when we will be glorified with Him one day, we will not be able to sin. Where are you on that metric? Are you in Christ? Then you are not beholden to sin anymore. You are free. You do not need to go back to drunkenness. You do not need to go back to lust. You do not need to go back to hatred. You are free. 
You are free in Him. The hard truth of Genesis chapter 3 as well is that God is sovereign. And therefore, God is even with us in our suffering. Yea, He even ordains suffering. Sin and misery and suffering are not outside of the dominion of God or beyond His control. But sin, or excuse me, but suffering is not merely punitive. It is not for only our punishment, but it is also redemptive. We see this in the curses. That deliverance from sin and its consequences in the seed of the woman is going to actually come by those consequences. That in the death of Christ, death would be defeated and sin would be no more. He would take the curses upon Himself and God would place the curses upon Him in redemption. He would place the sufferings that we endure in our lives upon Him and Christ will redeem it. He will set everything aright. We must cling to Him in our suffering. For He is the One who knows what it means to suffer and to die. But He will usher us into heaven. And beloved, one more word of application. Let us be those who share in one another's sufferings. We all know what it's like to suffer. And we will suffer with sin and misery until we see Christ face to face. A hug, a card, a condolence can seem to go farther than you can never imagine. It never hurts to reach out and to encourage somebody in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my dear friends, what we've seen this evening from Lord's Day 3, is that God did create a world that was perfect and pure and good. Corruption has come into this world. Suffering and sin and misery is here because of our own unrighteousness. But God will make everything aright in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will do a work of redemption and healing not only for you, but for this created world. And all the effects of the curse will be overturned in Him who is our Savior. May this be our hope this evening and our hope forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks that You are faithful and that You are good. And that even when man had rebelled against You, even though we were perfect and righteous, You looked upon us with pity and proclaimed to us a message of hope and salvation in Christ our Lord. Thank You, Lord, for this good creation. Thank You, Lord, for our bodies and our souls, which are good. Yet, Lord, we also recognize the stain of sin. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that You might purge us from the stain of sin. And that You would hasten the coming of the, our Lord. That he might come soon and quickly and wipe away all sin and wickedness in His, in his reign on earth. We pray, Father, that all these things would be ours and that You would give us the grace to believe it. In the name of Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.